This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and I'm joined today by Tony Black. Hi Tony, how are you? I'm very well, Duncan, thank you. It's a very lazy Easter Sunday we're recording this on and uh, I think probably the laziest one for a long time, <laughs> practically horizontally, <laughs> filled with chocolate. <laughs> Pretty much. Not not very far to go, not much to do. I've still got a piece of chocolate on the desk in front of me and a glass of, <laughs> not quite Chateau Picard, but uh, a, yeah, a nice glass close. of red wine anyway to hand. So yeah, we'll hopefully we'll be taking it easy. As I sit here drinking my um, tea... Not quite Earl Grey, but let's pretend it is. Is it decaf? That- <laughs> Earl Grey decaf, or you know? <laughs> it should be decaf, really. I think mm. it, would, it would be good for me now, like John Luke, yeah, really. Yeah. But uh, sadly not. Oh, yeah, I've reached that point in my life where I'm I'm pretty much on the decaf all the time. I mean, you know, Jean Luc <laughs> obviously got there in his nineties. I got there in my mid thirties. So you know, <laughs> I don't know what that says. But- well, it means you might live as long as him. Maybe, every chance. maybe. Or even longer. Who knows, you know. Yeah, <laughs> well, well, yeah. yeah, yeah. We'll Anything's see. possible. Well, in this episode, we are doing a kind of sort of whiz-bang, whistle-stop tour, really, through the first season of Star Trek Picard. So the way we're going to do this, I think, is it's going to be too much for us to fit into one episode of Primitive Culture. So we're going to split this into two. So what we're going to do is, in today's episode, we're going to look at the first half of the season. So we'll be going through the first three episodes, uh, kind of treating them as... as as one thing and then absolute candor and stardust city rag and then in next week's episode we'll pick up and we'll do the back half of the season uh, kind of running through into the finale i'm kind of slightly borrowing this idea i suppose from metatrex they do those episodes where they do essential philosophy for a season you, you know of, of star trek at a time and usually they do it they pick i think they pick five episodes each now if you and i were going to pick five episodes each of a 10 episode season uh, we could pretty much cover the whole thing so i thought rather than do that we'll <laughs> yeah. kind of take the same approach we're gonna we're not going to go into huge detail on any of these things but we're really just going through and kind of pulling out some of the influences, some of the things that registered with us, uh, sort of where these writers in particular are, you know, getting their crazy ideas from, basically, um, for this season. Because I think this season of Star Trek is a very rich one. It's a very, you know, you, you can see the influences in it, some maybe more obviously than others. And certainly someone like Michael Chabon, um, we know, is someone who 
believes very much in the idea of art as kind of influencing the the, the next generation for you know as it were i mean um clara and i were talking about this when we we're talking about sherlock holmes he had this wonderful quotation basically saying all fiction is fan fiction that essentially anyone writing anything is you know wearing their influences on their sleeve to some extent and i think there is certainly a lot of that in this season of picard that we can draw on and can pull out one way or another yeah I, i'd agree i think it it's one of those seasons that is steeped in, firstly, Star Trek lore and a, a real sort of deep knowledge of the Star Trek universe that has come before, but also quite an interweaving amount of references to, be it popular culture or literature or just the general sort of zeitgeist in terms of where we are as a society, which you'd expect from any Star Trek show. But I think given it's Jean-Luc Picard, it feels like maybe it's le- lent into that a little bit heavier than it did in Discovery, particularly, I would say. And you, the, it means maybe, even if, even if you know, I, I've got a, a podcast, a Star Trek podcast called Make It So, where we've gone through each episode of Picard. And even if Picard as a season of, of television and storytelling isn't perfect, I think it's gone into some really, really interesting areas I'm looking forward to talking through today. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, it should be an interesting discussion anyway, and probably we'll end up with a list of half a dozen future topics for uh, sort of, you know, full treatment on primitive culture uh, one way or another. But um, really, this, as I say, should just be a bit of a kind of whistle-stop tour. Um, anyone who's been listening into the line, I'm sure we're going to be treading on some similar territory to, I know Chrissy had a history corner on there, and I mean, history is certainly a big influence, you know, from episode one onwards, particularly World War Two history, which is kind of my patch as well. So that, that was something that really appealed to me about um, the fact that Star Trek was kind of drawing that link with Picard there. So we may be, there may be some kind of crossover there, um, obviously, but we will see what we come up with. So I thought what we'd start off with is to treat those first three episodes. To my mind, they are basically one episode. They are the pilot. I mean, I think uh, those of us who were lucky enough to see the first episode in the cinema in Leicester Square a couple of months ago, it feels like, you know, a different lifetime ago now, <laughs> but <laughs> but um, Patrick Stewart was quite upset that evening that they weren't able to screen those three episodes in their entirety. We only got to see the first one. And I think once you have seen all three of them, it's very much evident why that's the case. You know, they have a very kind of consistent tone and mood and uh, even sort of colour palette and, and uh, you know, the style of them. They, they feel very much of a piece and they were indeed directed by the same person. So that kind of makes a lot of sense, I think. And as we know, of course, there was some shuffling around when they decided to shift them from two episodes to three. I mean, I was going back rewatching and thinking, you know, can you see the joins? Can you sort of see where where was the original cliffhanger between these two parts, if you know what I mean? And how much of the stuff I sort of wondered whether was part of it, were they putting more of the kind of Borg Cube, Soji and Narek story into these three episodes than was maybe there before but anyway we can speculate along all those lines but just to say that that's why i think we're gonna we're gonna start kind of treating those three kind of as one unit pretty much as one episode and of course the the very opening moment of that pilot as it were of that first episode is a callback in a sense a callback to star trek it was a callback 20 years to star trek um to nemesis but it's also of course you know a, a a pop cultural reference with Blue Skies. And Blue Skies plays this, um, you know, I think much more effective role in the season of Picard than it does in Nemesis. I mean, I, I don't mind the way it works in Nemesis. I actually, some people hate it. I quite like that scene at the end with um, 
B4 and and Picard, you know, and that the kind of hope coming out of that song. But here we have that song as absolutely the kind of almost the other theme of the the season, uh, you know, to the point that we get it back in the finale with Issa Briones uh, singing it that time around. But to begin with, we get the Bing Crosby version. We get these beautiful shots of the Enterprise D. It's a very strange moment. Seeing that premiere in the, in the cinema, it was a very overwhelming experience. I wasn't really expecting it. I wasn't expecting to see the Enterprise D like that because I hadn't seen those trailers where they, they, they'd... I think they should have saved them, to be honest, but they, they'd already put out the trailers by the time it aired uh, internationally. But for those of us who got to go to the premieres, that was a complete surprise that we were going to see the ship like that. And I just remember sitting there feeling like within seconds this show had kind of completely floored me. And I think the music is, you know, is an element of that as well. Mm. Yeah, and uh, Blue Skies is, 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 I mean, it's a great song, the uh, Irving Berlin song from 1926, I think it is. But And it's it's well known, you know, across uh, culture. But I think its use in Nemesis was particularly good in in the sense that it, it managed to portray that sense of optimism while being undercut with that tragedy when, you know, you get that final... Little, but then it represents hope at the very end with B4, you know, humming the tune, you know, and what it suggests at the time about how data might actually come back. And that was the, you know, the, the, the little thing they left out there as a possibility. But I think it's, it was, it was a good choice to bring it back because they're, they, you know, Picard works really hard to reference Nemesis by not referencing it at all. <laughs> There's various points where they talk around Shinzon and that whole film, especially in that final Picard data conversation. Not much talk of the Remans you know, you in season one of Picard, no, it has to be said. <laughs> yeah. No Remans. Yeah. <laughs> I do like how Michael Chabon basically said, oh, well, they were a bad dream, weren't they? We don't talk about them, <laughs> which is quite funny. But it was it was a good way to sort of link back to where we were, um, <laughs> no pun intended, before. Because I think it, it, that song, there's something about the the irony of it. I think which is quite powerful in that sense that it is all about you know happiness, optimism, and then when Picard's on the Enterprise D, you know he's remembering the you know his his glory days on the ship he loved. It, it's undercut by the whole, you know, Mars attack and the fact it's a dream, and then he snapped back into reality. So, I think I think it was a good cultural reference point to to have originally, but it was really nice to see it back, and I think it worked very well. And there's that kind of tension, I suppose, between fantasy and reality, isn't there? Which you could say is kind of a theme of of the season, and obviously is a theme of Star Trek going back all the way to the cage, really. Um, but you know, even in this season of Picard, we've got that debate um you know soji says it real real is better basically like that you know am i a real person is this real is this a, a fantasy is it a dream and even in that opening episode picard says someone asked him have you been having bad dreams and he says the dreams are lovely it's the waking up that uh, i'm starting to resent <laughs> yeah. you know um and yeah. we have that line i don't want the game to end where he's playing poker with data poker obviously as well being this you know the idea of a game of poker and poker is kind of gambling and um tied up with that idea of you know risk is our business and the kind of the, the another sort of aspect of the star trek ideal i suppose you've got the optimism but you've also got this idea of kind of playing the game it almost reminds me a little bit of there's that line 
in the Deep Space Nine episode, um, it's only a paper moon where Vic Fontaine tells Nog that, you know, you've got to play the hand that you're given, basically. And, and that idea of sort of life almost being a poker game. And we get that later on as well, because Rafi describes the different aspects of Rios's broken personality, the broken pieces that make him up as a person as being like a hand of cards. And she, you, you know, she has to sort of lay them all down on the table to kind of see what you've got. So again, there's this kind of theme you've got in that opening scene, basically the final moment of Nemesis with Blue Skies, but also the final moment of Next Gen on TV with All Good Things, because you've got, you know, again, that kind of the poker game, bringing back the poker game again is another way of sort of, they're these kind of key sort of reference points, almost these sort of markers along the way of the Next Gen story that are kind of being hit one way or another. Those notes are kind of being hit to sort of bring us back very quickly into that world somehow these kind of scenes are are, are primarily designed for the star trek fandom you know in that they'll get the reference point they'll get blue skies they'll get the poker but but it is and they'll get the enterprise d but it is a i think part of the thematic idea of the fact that when picard meets starge he does have to gamble everything really he has to gamble his his life his health on on what could be a fool's errand what could be something really dangerous. So there is that level of, you know, uh, in many ways, what have you got left to lose? And that's the way he, he kind of thinks he goes all in, you know, with Dodge, he's, he's got, he's got nothing left to lose. So it's, it's a nice symbolic thing for that, I think, as well as being, you know, these, these key things that immediately, I mean, I remember as soon as Remembrance started, it was like, oh, the Enterprise, oh, Boca, oh, Data, you know, it's great. Over, it's a sensory overload right away in, in welcoming you back into the next generation world. He goes all in, but then, of course, we also find out later on he went all in once before when he basically gambled his career on the table with Starfleet Command. Uh, And it turned out, you know, his cards were a dud. I mean, they they called it and and he lost everything. So there's that kind of interesting sense. And, you know, Picard, of course, many famous quotes, one of which is it's possible to do nothing wrong I may be paraphrasing, but it's possible to do nothing wrong and still lose, basically that idea. You know, and that is kind of pretty much what we see happening to him. That's what precipitates the situation of the new Picard that we find in this series. And I think that that new Picard also, I mean, Michael Chabon uh, mentioned that this idea of Picard on his vineyard, this kind of elderly, slightly embittered um, kind of depowered in a sense character you know he's not this kind of commanding figure anymore we see in those early episodes again and again sort of humiliations for picard one way or another you know the the young guy at, at starfleet who doesn't even know who he is etc um he's kind of lost his authority he's lost his power shabon drew a connection between that and the ian mckellen movie mr holmes which has this kind of very elderly sherlock holmes who's you, you know now he's he's keeping bees or whatever and Michael Shabon actually himself wrote a novel which was very much along similar lines about a very elderly detective who is heavily implied, though I think not explicitly stated to be Sherlock Holmes. And he named it The Final Solution, being a reference to both The Final Problem, the Sherlock Holmes story, and The 7% Solution, the Nicholas Meyer, Sherlock Holmes pastiche. So it's sort of fairly obviously he was writing a novel about Sherlock Holmes, even if he wasn't explicitly saying that's what he was doing. Um, so I think that's obviously an influence there. But then, of course, a lot of people also have have, uh, drawn on the movie Logan as an influence. And I think a lot of people were assuming, and this is one way that I think maybe the switch in the final episode of this season slightly wrong foots you. It it doesn't just wrong foot you because of the way that they've set up this series from the first few episodes onwards in terms of it all being about mortality and Picard's mortality and so on. 
But I think it's the fact that there was this big assumption, and maybe this was just wrong on our parts, that Patrick Stewart went back to X-Men to do this final film and kill off his character in a kind of, you know, satisfying way. And everyone was kind of assuming that's what he was doing with Picard as well, that he wanted to do the same thing. And, you know, we've seen that before. I mean, Leonard Nimoy wanted to kill off Spock in a meaningful way. Uh, Brent Spiner wanted to kill off Data in a meaningful way. You know, there is this kind of thing often with these actors. They sort of want to close the book on these on these characters one way or another. And for them, that means killing them. So I think a lot of people were sort of assuming that Picard was going to be for Star Trek or for Next Gen, what Logan was for X-Men. And in fact... Maybe that's not the case. You know, looking forward, it seems like maybe it's it's gone in quite an unexpected and different direction, ultimately. Yeah, I I think mainly because it's in some ways, I suppose, a similar a similar setup in, in, in a sense in that you have two characters who are now who were in a particularly commanding sort of safe space where they were respected and trusted and that they've ended up kind of a shadow of their former selves in a much darker, more depressing world. You know, that's certainly the case with the old man Logan take in Logan and Professor X is is just, you know, he's just Charles now. He's not Professor X at all. And he was responsible for this. Again, it's a similar thing in that he was responsible in that film for this terrible thing because of his brain abnormality, because of his, his decaying mind that he killed basically all the X-Men in that's in that film. In, in the in the history of it and in this in this case Picard is an old man who's in in his mind you know left his career behind he's left people behind you know he's he's made mistakes and and he's he's dying of this brain abnormality so there is there are definite similarities but I think so I, I think they've absolutely been inspired in some way by the tone of Logan without without a shadow of a doubt which is fine I mean Logan's a fantastic film really and it really does give Patrick Stewart the chance to play something different but the, the the big difference really is that in the in the world of comic book cinema and the world of those kind of stories they are they are frequently uh, franchises that end up in dystopian sort of worlds you know and they can go into all these kind of different areas frequently in the marvel universe and the dc universe and they can tell these alternate futures um, whereas star trek has to at some level of its core be optimistic it has to be that kind of idea that Picard's not going to end up like Charles Xavier was in that film and just sort of quite sadly sort of decay. He's going to find a resurgence. So I think a lot of us maybe went in. I mean, I've said on my other podcast, I expected, I thought at the very beginning, this might be a one season thing and he might have a noble death at the end of this. But the more you go into it, the more you realise that he's on a sense, he's on a level of the hero's journey, Picard, and he needs to get back from the the dark place he's in to that position of light, which is exactly what happens during this season. But there are definite similarities between those two stories, 100%. Has to get his mojo back one way or another. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> Basically, yeah, somehow, absolutely. Somehow yeah. against the odds, uh, he does. Mm. One of the scenes that I think really jumped out for a lot of people out of that first episode was the interview. And I, I love the fact that the interview immediately brings in well, there, I would say, you know, probably three or four different reference points in a way. I mean, you've got the kind of Star Trek reference points. They sort of ping them all up on the screen in terms of Picard's history and so on. You've got this line, which I think resonated with a lot of people, uh, Romulan lives, no lives. So it feels like a very much a kind of tie into those kind of themes in the undiscovered country about, you know, um, the, the value of, of certain alien lives. It also felt to me weirdly like a kind of 
almost a sort of inversion of the debate around the Black Lives Matter movement, where, you know, in that instance, you had people saying Black Lives Matter and all these kind of annoying people saying, well, all lives matter. And so the, the all lives there was seen as a kind of you know, unsympathetic to this, to this need to call out what was going on in that situation. Now, in Picard, obviously, it kind of means it's almost it's the opposite. He's kind of, he's kind of doing the opposite. You know, the other person is saying Romulan lives, uh, not not to value the Romulan lives, but to say they're only Romulan lives. We don't care about that. And Picard is the one saying, no, all lives, you know, all lives matter. But from his point of view, he means it. it like, the, the impact, the the meaning of it, is the opposite in a sense. But I felt there was a kind of slight echo of that there somehow and then of course you've got this idea of the synth ban well the synth ban to me feels very much in line with you know say trump's muslim ban uh you, you know this uh, this idea that you have a group of people that you're scared of for some reason and therefore you're gonna literally ban them you're gonna outlaw them you're gonna say they're not allowed to come into your country or whatever and i think that certainly is a big theme of the series i mean patrick stewart said when they first announced this series, that the reason he wanted to come back to Picard was because they wanted to reflect on things in the contemporary world. I think these ideas about fear, you know, fear being the great destroyer, fear being an incompetent teacher, fear kind of governing decision making. We see that for the synths, who interestingly, Picard in that first episode, I noticed he doesn't call them synths, he calls them synthetics. So it's almost like he's trying to avoid using this slang that that almost seems as if initially it's it's kind of derogatory slang i think by the time we get to the end everyone seems happy with using the word synth but maybe to begin with there was that that kind of element there but definitely tying into this idea of policy being uh dictated by fear rather than by kind of right thinking in a sense and the idea that this ban this piece of legislation is a really terrible uh, failure on the part of the Federation. And, you, you know, Picard describes it as a betrayal. He describes it in these very strong terms. You know, he says it was immoral. This idea that a government may pass, you know, may legally pass a certain piece of legislation, but that doesn't mean that it's acceptable or that it's right. Yeah. And I mean, there, there is, there are clear attempts to reflect the situation that, that particularly the United States is in, I think, right now, in that it's under the auspices of a very right-wing administration who are completely based on you know reacting to and instigating fear among its citizens and you know for for if if you look between the lines they're for very mercenary reasons they are for reasons of uh, you know protecting the the one percent they're protecting the economy you know in terms of yeah um the the free market you know there's a lot going on under the surface that you'll never get the administration say but their actions are all about stoking that level of xenophobia based on people's you know fear of and 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 ease to blame the other you know the so-called other for the problems that are going on domestically and in this case the federation react in a way that he thinks is immoral but isn't completely without precedent you know and this this is this is the big thing really when in that even though the Federation's actions here are more perhaps overtly reactive and regressive in that they ban artificial life forms, sure, it's probably the biggest way they've done that. There are there have absolutely in Star Trek been the the quest, questions over the years, over the series, about whether or not the Federation is completely inviolate. You know, you only have to go back to, for one thing, insurrection with good old Admiral Dougherty, you know, and he's a whole... Uh, 
essential conspiracy that the people the federation know about you know he's not he's not a rogue admiral he's operating under certain parameters to try and remove these people in order for in quote marks a greater good and you've even got the fact that section 31 are operating you know and that 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 and they are absolutely a reaction to conspiracy culture in the 1990s the 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 creation of of an organization and essentially a a talshiar within the federation which is what section 31 is so You've absolutely had in the past of Star Trek the idea that the Federation isn't perfect and won't and will always make the the perfect just the right moral decision, you know. Where but I think the difference with Picard is that it's openly suggesting that they are a well, I mean, on one level corrupt or corrupted by O and her conspiracy, but also their 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 actions have been dictated by fear. But I think that that. The problem I have with this is though that the Picard's a little. I think ultimately, as a show, is a bit toothless about it because I think it never really gets into the the mindset of the Federation at any point. You know, the most you get in that, in fact, is in the supplementary material in things like The Last Best Hope by Una McCormack. That goes into some level of detail. And if you read that book, I know it's not exactly canon, but if you read that book, they are far more sympathetic. Actually, characters like um, Clancy are far more sympathetic when you read that book because you understand a little bit more of their thought process behind what they're doing and how they've done things and how they're reacting to um, you know, the Romulan crisis particularly, which is, which is the bigger thing behind all this, you know, the humanitarian crisis. And so I think the show goes in a direction where it doesn't really want to face the issue. It puts it out there in that interview, it has Picard's moral objection, but then it kind of just swerves it for me. It just goes off into the more adventure axis for Picard's journey and involving the Borg and, you know, the evil Romulans and all this kind of thing, but, and the, and the artificial intelligence itself, but it never, it doesn't really focus on what I think in a way is the more interesting idea, which is, you know, what, what is the Federation's thought process? And then it kind of just dials it back at the end. You know, it kind of just says at the end, oh, well, you know, they've lifted the band name because they've proven it was all a big conspiracy that the other, in quote marks, were to blame. So the Federation's fine. And well, actually, no, because they <laughs> they made decisions that were questionable. And I would have loved to have seen it go into that a little bit more. And I don't think it will now, really. Well, and it's almost like the fact that they had a mole high up in the organisation kind of gives them an out you you know we can blame O for all that you, you know the yes this attack was a sort of false flag attack it wasn't what we thought it was uh and therefore they were misled and you know if they hadn't been misled then maybe they wouldn't have done it and, and we don't get to see i mean you know picard tells the synths in the first part of the finale i will speak for you i will be this great you know figure i think a lot of us would have loved to see you know that old Picard, you know, Picard from the measure of a man, basically giving his kind of resounding speeches and, and t- carrying the day. Uh, of course, we don't get that. That happens, you know, sort of while he's, you know, in between one life and the next or whatever. Mm. <laughs> kind of, <laughs> yeah. you, you know, we, we kind of pass over all that. It's just kind of mentioned in passing. I think it's interesting, though, this idea. I mean, you mentioned Trump. I, I think there is this sense with the you know, certainly with the attacks on Mars, if you if you think of the children of Mars short as well, there is this kind of link to 9-11 one way or another um, that a lot of people felt with that with that short. Uh, I think because although many more people were killed, they initially the number that comes up on the screens, it says 3,000 dead or something, which is approximately the number in the, in the Twin Towers and so on. Um, the scene actually in the 
teaser of Maps and Legends, very scary depiction of that attack on Mars, which was not originally planned to be included. I think that was the thing that got added when they decided to split those episodes into three. Very effective. And by the end, you've got that synth F8 who you know, turns the gun on himself. He does sort of become almost a sort of suicide bomber, essentially, in that he he terminates himself as well as carrying out his mission. I think there is definitely that sense of of fear that's being engendered that they they make that scene very actually very scary in a way that yeah. Star Trek kind of often doesn't do. I think they want to sort of show the the complete sort of shock of it in the in that it's a completely su- sudden out of nowhere event, a bit like you know nine nine eleven, but then. Uh, the, the the difference with nine eleven is that the 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 embers of the seeds of fundamental fundamentalism were being sown for many many years. You know, the twin towers was attacked in nineteen ninety two. You know, some nine years before nine eleven by the same essentially the same organization. They just didn't destroy them. You know, so that was was building up in the real world for a long time before two thousand eleven changes the game. You know, and they actually do that horrendous thing. Whereas. In this, it all it completely seems completely out of the blue, and then there's the whole mystery. And there's no mystery about 9/11. Well, <laughs> conspiracy theorists will tell you otherwise, but there there is no mystery really. We know who did that, and we know who's responsible. But with this, there was the whole, you know, insidious conspiracy, and I'm sure we'll talk about this in a minute. But with Rafi's belief that it wasn't actually, you know, just computer a computer system that went wrong with these synthetics, and there was something behind it, and ultimately that's validated. You know, I mean, actually. Picard, yeah, the difference between, you know, en- Enterprise at the, just when 9-11 happened, investigated 9-11 by actually putting the, the, fed, the, the you know, the nascent sort of Starfleet and the Enterprise itself in the middle of a reactive situation where they were going out essentially like the US to Afghanistan and they were going to find the Zindi. They were going to find the people who did this and bring them to justice in a sense or stop it happening again. Picard, some 20 years later, actually indulges in the conspiracy theory of it and actually wants actually validates the conspiracy theory of the whole thing <laughs> you know it actually in the end yes it was a conspiracy yes there were you know sinister others who created all this in order to trick the federation into blah 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 so it it fits the times actually particularly with trump in power and that administration and not just trump but all the you know western and eastern governments now who are indulging in propaganda lies fake news quote unquote and and conspiracy theory it fits this era that is full of misinformation and conspiracy but at the highest levels of power, that actually all this was a conspiracy, and that it was it, that was the truth. That that's the bizarre thing. And I think you know whether it's whether that was intentional on Chabon and the writers' part or not, it actually fits in that sense for me. But for the post-truth world, it's the kind of yeah. There's this sort of uncertainty about what really happened. And you're right, I think. And Raffi is presented very much as this you know conspiracy theorist who kind of went down a rabbit hole and never came out. Almost, she is the kind of you know she's sort of Fox Mulder in the the years you know between <laughs> X Files films she kind of yeah. <laughs> her life falling apart yeah. around her basically i mean she loses yeah, her whole bit. family uh mm. because of it and yet she turns out to be right i mean I, I suppose the thing is it's in some ways the plot in a sense is exchanging one set of others for another but i guess the thing is everyone is very ready to believe that the synths are bad do you know what i mean i mean we had that that rogue synths when they're you know when children of mars came out this idea of rogue synths 
are, are they because if those synths are just rogue ones then the other synths ought to be all right but i guess you know as with the kind of you know with these muslim bands and so on there's this sense of like tarring everyone with the same brush and obviously picard knows that's not the case because he served with data and he knows what a decent man data was basically and we see in various ways throughout the season how this ban has impacted on people i mean i think by implication it must be one reason i i know that gerati says that the thing with B4 didn't really, you know, it didn't work out, it didn't take or whatever. But any attempt to kind of revive data or to kind of bring him back to life, which is sort of what we assumed was going to happen at the end of Nemesis, uh, is shelved, is basically rendered illegal by this ban. You know, the Troys lose their son because they can't um, do the medical procedure they need to because of the ban. It's kind of uh, destroying people's lives. But I mean, it's easy for us to point the finger at Trump. I think when we talk about this idea of using the fear of others and the kind of political use of that, uh, Brexit is another big example because, you know, we had exactly the same thing in the Brexit referendum with these kind of images of, you know, refugees and kind of foreigners uh, coming into the country and this kind of, you know, stoking that fear of the outsider and of the other and of people that, you know, are different from us and that we don't want around anymore. And I I think, you know, you could say arguably the show is kind of tapping into that as well. And certainly when we get Picard, this sort of 90-something Picard giving that interview and talking about history and talking about the importance of understanding the past and saying to that woman, you know, you weren't there, uh, you haven't, you know, served in this fight, you don't know what it was like, you don't know, you don't you don't know your own history. I mean, not only does she not know mid-20th century uh, European history, but she doesn't even know the history of her own time, essentially, is kind of what he's saying. It reminds me very much, I think it's no coincidence that they made him an expert on World War Two, because it reminded me very much of all those you know, World War II veterans whose video clips were being uh, projected up onto the White Cliffs of Dover, basically saying Brexit is a terrible idea. This is not what we fought for. You know, Europe needs to be together to protect all of us. You know, this is a terrible, terrible mistake, essentially. And that idea of this kind of elder generation, the, the eldest generation, you know, the Americans call them the greatest generation, but this generation who fought and won the Second World War trying to give this warning, essentially a kind of warning from history and being ignored by the younger generations in a sense. Um, and I think that Picard, as this 90-something protagonist uh, who's writing about Dunkirk, absolutely taps into that one way or another. I mean, he he's not obviously a member of that generation. It, it's, it's a kind of strange analogy because they have to do it in two ways. You know, one is his age that we're being presented with and the kind of stuff he's saying about their own recent history. But the other is the fact that he himself he's the only one who remembers the second world war because no one else seems to be interested in it uh no one else knows about dunkirk and so on and he does because he's taken a historical interest in it but at the same time it draws that kind of parallel for us that the people who remember that war and actually served in it are the ones who are picard's age and whose advice is being ignored at the moment yeah i i I think that's very potent and i think that's almost certainly something that that patrick stewart wanted to explore with this and you know there have been back and forth with people saying whether or not the the whole Brexit parallel is is fair or it's it's just something people are reaching too much into and I think I I, th- I think it's not necessarily overt but I think it's definitely a subtext and I think you know it, it has to be you know the very fact they've chosen these kind of story points has to be a subtext for the fact that we are we are reacting to to paranoia to misinformation as as nations as nations that were previously quite balanced you know we are reacting whether on the far left or on the far right and i and i think i think there is a real reaction i think the confluence of this is with 
technology as well, in that there is a growing anxiety and fear about the use of technology, about how much it's reaching into our lives, about how much it's becoming, you know, it's transforming our world very, very quickly, you know, and we, we're not far away from, you know, the idea of having sort of personalised homes, sort of um, not just sort of robots that, that do things for us around the home, but also the, you know, the, the, the idea of the, um, what's the name of it? Like the, uh, the, the sort of living home kind of idea, the idea that a house is completely smart, the smart home, that's where I'm getting at, the smart home idea of everything being connected and everything, and you're seeing it in a lot of shows right now where that, that technology is being turned against people. There's a great episode of The X-Files in the most recent season, which is all about... Um, there's a whole sequence where the character of Scully is in a smart home and, and it starts to it starts to turn against her and it, set, it sets things on fire and you know it completely traps her in this perfect building in a sense and also in the most recent series of Westworld which is a show that's all about emerging technology and that confluence between you know it, uh, the the human world and the technological world and it's set like in the in fact Westworld is doing some very Star Trek ideas in many ways and there is a real sort of comparison to some levels of Picard because it's all about an artificial intelligence that's starting to you know question its role and the role of humanity and whether or not biological people are of any worth and it's a it's a battle it's a war between these two ideas and in that there's a whole the, the, the third season begins with a super rich sort of corporate billionaire being murdered in his smart home which the and the, the essentially the synth Dolores, who is a, who is basically a, a, the 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 hosts in Westworld are basically androids. They're like data kind of things. They're like the sort of thing that Noonie and Sung would create. And um, she turns it against him, and she uses it to help kill this guy. And so you're seeing that a lot in fiction. So I think there's a real sense that Picard is exploring these ideas of growing artificial in- intelligence in our lives that is causing some anxiety. And then if you blend that with, you know, sort of that that fair parallel of the synths representing either in the US maybe the idea of the muslim or the uh, you know the mexican across the border or in the UK the 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 refugee or even the european you know the the non indigenous in the in a sense and i think that parallel is very clear and so i think it's brewing the two up in that it's referring back to the second world war as that real sort of change point for humanity and also where we're heading, you know, the idea of future technology. And it did make me think, actually, just off the, off the back of you talking about how the interviewer doesn't remember World War II. I thought, in that at that point in history, will people really still remember things like Dunkirk and the Second World War in the same extent? I mean, if you look back, do, do, do people now really remember things that happened in... Because the equivalent, what, what would it be? Three... 450 years ago, I think, something like that. Do people really remember what happened in 1550, like, or 1570, you know, in our world? But I think maybe it will be different because the Second World War was such a massive turning point for humanity in many ways that maybe they should be remembering that in 2399. Do you know what I mean? Maybe they should. Who knows? I mean, they've got the whole, you know, Federation history is is a lot more expansive than just, you know, Earth history or just European Earth history or whatever. Um, But I think they have got that interesting 
perspective on it, I suppose, you know, whose history is it? So for us, World War II is very resonant, not least because there are still people around in their 90s, to, you know, who, who lived through it. So it's it's just about within the realm of, of living memory, which is, you know, my whole career is interviewing those people, basically, and writing about it. So, you know, from my point of view, it's very significant that those people are around to tell those stories um, firsthand, really. You know, it's 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 not dead history in that sense. It's kind of living history just about. Star Trek has always been interesting in the Second World War. In referencing Dunkirk, it specifically references a, a kind of British take on the Second World War, not an American take. It's the kind of early, you know, it's from the period, it's right at the beginning of the war. This is the kind of spring of 1940. This is long before the Americans were involved in the war. You know, Patrick Stewart obviously is a British actor. I know Picard is meant to be French. We've just seen him on his vineyard, etc. But Picard is sort of weirdly coded as British. He drinks Earl Grey tea, even though he's notionally French. Um, you know, so there's that kind of weird double thing there. There's also this thing that, in fact, in reality, you know, Patrick Stewart isn't old enough to have served in World War II. It was his father who served in World War II. And as we know, you know, came back, um, with, with some kind of PTSD or whatever that led into this kind of abusive behavior, you know, that Patrick Stewart has given all this time to domestic violence charities and so on as a result. And indeed to kind of, um, veterans post traumatic stress. Uh, charities as well because of his father's experiences in that war so there's that weird thing where you know Picard is of an older generation than Patrick Stewart somehow in the same sense as Picard is in his 90s Patrick Stewart's in his late 70s so there's this kind of weird element there but I think it's kind of noticeable that the show is not invoking World War II in that kind of American it's it's not you know it's not like in Voyager where we had the the GIs turning up and sort of you, you know marching to victory kind of thing. This is the period where Britain was kind of pretty much going it alone in this real difficult situation. Ingenuity and kind of, you know, I mean, actually, I mean, with the situation we're in at the moment, you know, people are talking about our sort of the blitz spirit being revived in the era of coronavirus and so on, helping each other out and so on. I mean, the interesting thing about Dunkirk is Dunkirk was not just I mean, first of all, it was a kind of victory clutched from the jaws of defeat, or if you look at it another way, a defeat that was spun as a victory because it was a kind of, could have been a catastrophic failure on a much grander scale. And, and the, 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 the scale of the defeat was, was scaled back. But there's also that element of the little ships. I mean, what we don't see in the Picard story, I sort of thought maybe, I, I thought maybe after Picard had, had lost his job, essentially, he and Rafi were going to go out there and put together a kind of ragtag humanitarian armada of little ships and kind of do what they could, which is kind of what everyone seems to keep saying to him. Why did you walk away? Why did you give up? Just because you couldn't do it perfectly. Why did you quit? You know, why did you give up on these people? And maybe that's what he should have done, really, is thought, well, you know, if we are thinking of Dunkirk, it's not just the Navy who can send ships, you know, Anyone with a ship, anyone with a boat can be out there doing their bit and saving a handful of people. And maybe that would have been the way to go. And of course, they would never have saved them all, but they would have um, kind of made a dent in it. But anyway, I just think it's interesting that it kind of specifically references a very British moment in, in World War II history. And I think, again, even, you know, when we come back later on in the finale, we get another reference to World War II where Picard talks about um, the use of chaff uh, to disrupt radar. Again, it's a very different, um, you, you know, this sort of calls to mind the Battle of Britain and the, the, the sort of battle in the air and so on. It's, it's not the World War Two that we really associate with the kind of the, the allied, you know, push and the kind of Americans role in the war somehow. It sort of feels a bit more specific 
somehow. And I think it's interesting that, you know, right at the end of the season, we get this reminder again that Picard is this guy who has spent his twilight years. Yes, he says he's been, you know, counting time and waiting to die. But he has also been writing these history books, which presumably took a certain amount of research and so on, even if no one actually wants to read them. Um, and he's been absorbing himself in this particular period of history. I think I, th- I think you're right. I think it's partly the fact of, of Patrick Stewart's British heritage and, you know, the, the fans' awareness that even though he is technically French, he was always more English in many ways in the show. And I think maybe it's because the, the the Second World War in in the mind's eye of actually Americans is as associated with the UK and, and, and British people in in popular culture. You know, it could be as well the fact that, you know, most recently we had a, a very well successful Dunkirk movie from Christopher Nolan. So it's back in the mind's eye of that what happened in Dunkirk as well. And I think I think so. I think there could be a mixture of of those kind of things, and the fact that it, it's it's one it's maybe they feel like it's one of those Second World War stories, like you know, like D like the D Day landings and and things like that that are like you know, like we saw in Saving Private Ryan, for instance, that are particularly iconic to that war, you know, and, and are and are extremely sort of well known, and they can call upon Dunkirk as a reference point, and people will, in broad strokes, understand what it was and how it's relevant to the humanitarian crisis with the Romulans. So I think there's a mixture of the two why they particularly are called upon that as a reference point. Yeah, and it's absolutely um, something that they're kind of using to anchor the series one way or another. Another way that they do that, which I think is quite striking, which differentiates Picard, certainly from Discovery, but from pretty much every previous uh, iteration of Star Trek, I think, is the extent to which they anchor the series in the present day. Now, I found this slightly disconcerting to begin with, because we know this is set in the far future. And I've seen interviews with Alex Kurtzman where he basically said we didn't want to have, you know, floating hotels and kind of, you, do you know what I mean? All the, the kind of paraphernalia of, I suppose, that sort of... 60s onward idea of the sort of utopian future but famously Nicholas Meyer was unhappy with the office chairs that they had to use in Star Trek 6 because their budget didn't stretch to like sort of more fancy sci-fi chairs and certainly compared to the Enterprise D where everything looks I mean it looks kind of 80s but it also looks sort of uh, slightly otherworldly somehow here we have you know Girati basically using a pair of airpods we have 3D printers everywhere uh, standing in for replicators we have O with her sunglasses which I know caused an enormous sort of internet storm uh, we have Picard using Twining's tea bags. Now, that was a really bizarre <laughs> choice, I think. I don't know if that was just <laughs> accidental. Um, but, you know, we have these kind of little subtle kind of almost unconscious reminders that we are in the real world somehow, that this is our, that this is our world. This is not some kind of otherworldly futuristic sort of utopian place that is no longer earth Some, somehow that it feels very grounded in a sense and those first three episodes of course are you know they are grounded in the sense they do all take place on earth they, they even call earth the earth in this series which i don't think they ever do in star trek before which again i feel is a way of almost sort of grounding it slightly um you know and there are these discussions in those early episodes where you know where laris tells picard oh um the sister, you know, Soji, the, the other sister is off world. It's seen as like this big surprise. And I remember watching that first time. I was like, well, so what? This is Star Trek. You know, that means nothing to these people. But at the same time, then we see Girati, who's like clearly, you know, is, is both 
sort of excited and horrified at the idea of going into space. You know, it's a very different approach to space travel somehow from these these people. And certainly from those first two episodes, it does feel they are trying to kind of ground it um, in a way that we haven't seen before. And I know with Enterprise, they talked about doing that for their first season, sort of trying to stay on Earth for longer. But I feel like by having these first three episodes where we don't, you know, we don't leave Earth orbit, other than those scenes on the Borg Cube, which in some ways I think undercut it a little bit. I, I slightly feel they should have saved more of that story for later on and just focused on the, the story on Earth. Um, for me, it really works as a kind of pilot. You know, if you see those three episodes as one long extended pilot, it makes perfect sense that we don't leave Earth until the end of the third episode. Yeah, because it's almost like, the, particularly Remembrance, but the whole three, they're almost like a, an extended version of like when TNG did family, you know, it's like putting an earth based setting. I think maybe the reason for this is because they wanted to try and depict the galaxy as much more wild and scary and unpredictable and dangerous. And that could be, it could be of being an, uh, a level of reaction within the mindset of people in that they don't leave Earth as, as often now. In the last 15 years, since the synth ban, since the attack, the fact that Mars is burning, maybe culturally there is a bit of a fear of going too far out there because they are, and maybe the Federation propaganda and the, the Federation, you know, the way they've reacted has been a little bit like, let's not go too far, let's pull back, it's scary out there, the neutral zone has collapsed, it's a bit lawless, you know, you can't really be sure about, you know, you, if you go out there, you might die, you know, if you go out there into the unknown, um, but it's not an unknown in this case that is exciting, you know, back in, in the Next Generation era and there, and also the original series, you know, The Frontier was exciting. They were, they were, you know, they were throwing themselves at it, you know, and, and what's see, let's see what's out there. You know, that's the first thing Picard says at the end of Encounter at Farpoint, you know, let's see what's out there. And whereas now it seems like everybody's like a bit like, well, let's not, you know, because what's out there is probably going to be pretty terrifying. So I think that might be an intentional kind of decision to try and make, and, and you know, that the whole series goes out of its way to, make it the, the galaxies feel, feel a lot more in the area we're in anyway feel a lot more lawless and i think that's when when the federation do eventually show and starfleet eventually does show up at the end i i, I feel like they're it, it's so they seem so fantastic fantastical to this world that we that picard has created that they almost don't seem to fit you know, they come in in their hundred odd shiny ships that are glistening with their huge firepower, scare off the the you know the the Zap Vash, the Romulans O, essentially, and then they disappear again. I think I described them um, on my other podcast as being a little bit like the equivalent of space wizards when Riker and that lot turn up because they might as well be. You know, they they feel like so alien now to the world that Picard creates. Which is the most ironic thing to say because it's Starfleet, <laughs> you know, it's twenty late twenty fourth century Starfleet, but they they almost don't seem to fit the world that Picard creates because it's so very it's so determined to sort of chart its own course and present this world as you know wild and dangerous and, and unpredictable, and that's why you know you mentioned the Borg Cube. I feel like it, it, the Borg Cube was a bit of a disappointment because it wasn't really as looming and monolithic and scary as maybe a Borg cube should have been you know really a, a lot of it which it felt quite functional in the way it was presented yes okay it wasn't full of Borg and it wasn't out there you know attempting to destroy everybody but it did it didn't quite have the the, the weight and the power that that, that reaching that cube should have had for me 
And I think part of that is because they do weave in some of these other storylines, some of these are quite an ineffective storylines, if we're being truthful, in the middle of it. So I think it, it, could, it could be that, that the show goes out of its way to try, on the one hand, to present the galaxy as scary, but on the other, when they do get out there, it doesn't really feel that terrifying, in a way. It feels fairly... Yeah, it feel it, I never I never really got the sense that Picard would would die out there, really, because I I, I even with his ragtag group of people, I don't know whether that's the, the 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 show a failure on the show's part or it's just the fact that it's trying to sort of balance these two elements of 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 this kind of Star Trek universe and the one that we used to have. Well, that's an interesting way of looking at it. I suppose I I like that idea that Starfleet have become so kind of alien by the end that. You know, by the time they do kind of rush into the rescue, it's almost they're, they're almost coming. They, I suppose they are almost coming out of a different show. They're coming out of the Star Trek show that we still relentlessly are not being given. You know, however many years later that we're asking the post nemesis star, you know, show that actually involves a starship with you know kind of a Starfleet ship and, and is kind of doing the next Star Trek one way or another. And so maybe we're sort of only just kind of getting the tiniest glimpse of that. I think it's interesting you mentioned family. I mean, certainly those three episodes very heavily influenced by family in that they take place, you know, at the Chateau. That's the kind of key location. And the fact that the whole season manages to retain that set by putting that into his kind of holographic quarters on the um That's very Serena. clever. Very clever move. Um mm. and a very strange thing to do as well because in some ways, yes, okay, we know that's his home, but we know it's a home that he's not that keen on one way or another. He has very kind of ambivalent feelings about. I mean, in family, that home, in a sense, and his trauma and his, his experience and everything, was the threat in the episode. You know, that was the danger that was going to stop him going back to the Enterprise. And what we wanted was for him to kind of recover and get back to work and get back to the Enterprise. And we see that in Star Trek, you know, all these episodes where someone meets, you know, falls in love with someone who's going to like pull them away from their job, pull them away from their friends and so on, whether it's Beverly's sexy candle or, you know, whatever it is in kind of, <laughs> there are, you know, there are Voyager episodes where someone considers leaving the ship because of, yeah. you know, the, the doctor gets a new career as an opera singer or whatever it is, you know, and in family, it's absolutely, Earth is kind of pulling Picard, he's, he's being pulled back to Earth somehow. He wants to go and do that rather boring sounding job in the oceans or whatever, rather than go back out into space. At the same time, you've got this sense of the kind of um, the young Picard and Rene uh, as these kind of kind of young men dreaming of a life in space. And I think that one of the most effective uh, moments in that kind of three part pilot are the the moments that we see where Picard is kind of looking up at the stars. We're kind of having a replaying of that and that beautiful scene with Laris where but where Picard says to her, I tried my best to belong to this place, but I don't think I ever truly felt at home here. And that sense that really, you know, Picard does kind of need to be out in space. But it's interesting, that idea of family, you know, what is family? I mean, in, in Next Gen, the crew of the Enterprise are Picard's real family. Yes, he's got this brother he doesn't get on with down there. And he's, you know, the family and family are kind of, they're the families of origin, but they're not really the family that the show is interested in. Again, in this series, it seems like Picard has to kind of form a new family. Um, okay, we get to meet up with some of his old, you, you know, we get to meet up with Riker and Troy. And obviously those are very important relationships in that episode, you know, had everyone in floods of tears throughout. But he also does have to kind of build this ragtag crew. He does also have to build this ragtag crew into a point where they feel like a family as well. And you do have this interesting sense with all these kind of surrogate children for Picard. I mean, first of all, Data 
being slightly almost reinvented as a kind of surrogate son to Picard, which I don't think is ever quite, maybe that was there sort of in the subtext in Next Gen and so on, but was never pinpointed quite as clearly as even in these first few episodes when the way that Picard talks to Darge is very much as if he sees her as his granddaughter somehow. And then again, um, with Elnor, you know, again, we have this situation, this kind of surrogate, well, maybe, you know, maybe it's a surrogate grandchild rather than a surrogate child. But, you know, Picard in this very sort of paternal role, in a sense, to these two young people, and in kind of a paternal role, even to the older members of the crew as well, you know, someone like Raffi, obviously a bit older, but, you, you know, I suppose Raffi could, is, is probably the right age to be Picard's daughter, you know. So there's that kind of sense of him as this sort of grandfatherly figure, but um, at the same time, almost not the sort of old school patriarch that, you, you know, he, he might be in his most sort of authoritarian mode, but as he is almost the kind of granddad to this whole uh, family that he's gathered around him in the sense that we might say, you know, the old Picard was, that was the sort of, slightly stern father of that ship Janeway obviously is the kind of uh kind of mother hen of of the Voyager brood you, you know this is Picard again pulling a sort of family together and taking up that kind of role at the head of it one way or another Picard in next generation always felt he never really felt fatherly as opposed to he felt more to me he felt more like a rather taciturn kind of boss figure in some senses. And then it was, you know, towards the end of that, and particularly then in the movies, he does sort of become a little bit more of that caring father figure in a sense, because he mellows, you know, he mellows as a character, particularly after all good things. And I think that was a very conscious choice on Patrick Stewart's part that he wanted Picard to feel more like a human, you know, throughout that, that, that chat. And it does, it does happen, but you know, when, when you compare that to, like you say, Janeway is the matriarch. And so, but but in in this, I think he's he's kind of evolved to that point where he's he 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 needs to feel to be in that position. I think I think he needs to feel like he's he's in that role, and that because he's he feels a real sense of survivor's guilt in terms of data, and that he was never you know that was a bit it was a big regret at the end of all good things, wasn't it? When he says you know I should have done this years ago, I should have embraced you more as a kind of surrogate family. Because he never really, he never had one, you know, he never had, he never properly had a family, you know, there were moments where maybe he had a son here or, you know, he had a relationship there, but he's never, his life was Starfleet, his life was the service, his life was the exploration, it was the complete polar opposite of his brother. And him now, in at this point, assembling this dysfunctional family feels far more pointed than it was during the days of the next generation, where it sort of organically came together, but it wasn't... You know, it wasn't like he was the dad of a family. It was more like he became a, f- a good friend to these people. And you see that in Nepenthe. You know, you get that feeling. He's like, it's like they've had, you know, one of their oldest friends come and stay as opposed to a dad. You know, that that's the, that's the feeling I get from it. But then in this case, he is being a father figure to certain people, you know. And, and there's that great moment in Nepenthe, isn't it, when Riker's asking about the crew and he says, they've got a lot more baggage than you lot did. <laughs> and that's and that's the, that's the case. You know, he really has sort of assembled this ragtag group, all of whom have their, their problems and their foibles, but all of whom look up to him in different ways, you know. And, and I think he's, aware, he's much more aware of that now than he was years ago. And that's why he's trying to, he wishes he, I think he wishes he'd been more like that with data and that he'd be more of that overt and told him and said, I really care about you. You're like, you're very important to me. And he never felt like he did. 
And I think a lot of this is about him trying to make up for that. Um, well, before we move on from these sort of first few episodes, is there anything else that you wanted to to highlight? Any other kind of uh, reference points or topics that you wanted to bring up in relation to Remembrance, Maps and Legends and The End is the Beginning? Well, I just think maybe I wanted to just briefly mention Laris because she's obviously one of the breakout sort of characters. I know we briefly mentioned her before, but she is kind of the, one of the breakout characters, even though she's only in like the first three episodes. I don't think they anticipated the fan reaction to her and, and how great she was to fans. And I, I get the feeling we might see her again in the next season off the back of that in maybe, maybe even more of a bigger role. But she really stood out because it's one of those instances where I think the actor, Orla Brady, really brings her own her own sense of who she is into a role. Because I can't imagine Laris on the page was written to be very Irish. <laughs> and and you know she is she is the most Irish she's the most to me deliberately sort of not just human but particularly nation centric alien I think Star Trek has ever done in that I can't ever remember you know it's it's like it's like the equivalent of having um say a Cardassian or a Klingon who or okay let, maybe let's use this then a, a Klingon with a very distinct Russian accent and a lot of inflections in that kind of, you know, because the Klingons were historically, you know, considered like the Russians of the Star Trek universe. But imagine if you had a Klingon who was very deliberately Russian from a Klingon planet. I know I know that Worf's, you know, uh, adoptive parents were Ukrainian, I think. So there was a little bit of that there, the Rizhenkos. But do you see what I'm getting at? That you never got that. Whereas with Larry, she, is, she feels more Irish than she does Romulan. And I thought that was quite fascinating as to whether or not, did they just like that about her? And allow that sort of cultural aspect to stay because it seems strange in that, that you know that they didn't sort of almost say to all of Brady maybe tone the Irishness down a bit because she's supposed to be from Romulus you know you, we're not even living in Ireland you know we're living in France <laughs> so I, I wonder about I don't know what you think about this but I wonder as to whether or not they just liked her portrayal enough that they didn't mind. They didn't mind the fact that she very clearly doesn't sound Romulan at all. Well, and they let her change the script. I mean, that the cheeky feckers line was her well, line. Yeah, it was not go. written uh, in go. that way. So, you know, they kind of uh, allowed her to, you know, uh, beef up the Irish uh, in that character, I think. I mean, I think it works fantastically well. I sort of, I, I like the idea we might get more of that. I mean, we do to the extent that we get you know characters with british accents or characters you, you know obviously most of them have american accents we do now and then we get someone with a bit of a, a you know i suppose a bit of an accent but yeah you're right absolutely it's the most kind of recognizably it, again i feel like it sort of grounds the show in our world and in our reality to some extent she's certainly she's not doing a sort of no, no, none of the romulans in this show actually and it's interesting when I went to the premiere and I did those interviews with some of the actors, I asked Harry Treadaway and Evan uh, Evagora if they had kind of swapped notes on how to play a Romulan. Because I suppose it is true, like if you think of Next Gen in particular, the Romulans, they have a sort of certain, there's a certain style to them in the same way as a sort of style to Cardassians and certainly Klingons, you know, anyone who plays a Klingon kind of has to, or a Vulcan, has to have watched all the other ones, or at least, you know, the, the, the most important ones to kind of get, okay, fine, there's a sort of, yes, I can do my own thing, but all Klingons have to have a certain kind of demeanour and a certain kind of bearing and so on. So I said to them, you know, did you swap notes on how to play a Romulan, basically. 
and they and I didn't know then that these two characters would like have literally virtually no screen time together pretty much no screen time together until the final episode I think and they said uh, no not really because we just felt we were playing our own characters and it didn't really you know playing Romulan is not meaningful is not interesting do you know what I mean so I suppose there obviously was a decision in the show that we were not going to kind of lean into these you know I suppose the idea that Star Trek has often presented of alien uh, cultures as as slightly monocultural yeah. do you know what I mean that everyone yeah. has these kind of species characteristics all Vulcans kind of talk basically the same all Klingons kind of talk basically the same uh, so in a sense having the Romulans cast in that way and p- behaving in that way ties into that sense that these are just people you know their lives they're regular they're regular people one way or another i think laris is fantastic i thought you were going to say when you brought up laris that you were going to uh, bring up the obvious debt to csi and the kind of forensic you know <laughs> well, yeah, there is the forensic shows when yeah. she suddenly brings out her tal shiar skills and kind of magically <laughs> recreates a crime scene that, that you, you know out of thin yeah. air because uh, i do think there was an element of that there they were kind of borrowing from those kind of shows and that sort of um that sort of fascination with the idea of, which in some ways actually does go back all the way to Sherlock Holmes, you know, with kind of recreating the the invisible mystery of, of what had happened one way or another. And and like you said as well, it, it sort of grounds it again, doesn't it? It's one of those uh, things that it's recognisable sort of, you know, I, I, I yeah, I, I immediately thought of like CSI when I saw that and so would many people. So it does ground it again. I think that's another good example. A couple of other things that jumped out at me in those early episodes, uh, just briefly, Girati reading the uh, Asimov book. I mean, Asimov was the, the guy, I guess, who invented, I think, the idea of a positronic brain and a positronic robot. So in some ways, Data owes his you know something of his genesis to Asimov one way or another and obviously the synths in this series are kind of the next generation again uh, from Data and of course Asimov had these laws laws of robotics that were supposed to govern his robots you know and the first law was that they mustn't harm human beings well obviously what we've got in this situation is the synths that have gone rogue and have harmed human beings so I suppose there's that kind of lingering uh, there's a kind of a, a lingering sense of of Asimov's writing in the in the background of Star Trek's reality in a sense, but then it's immediately discounted by Picard because uh, Picard is the one who says, "Oh, I could never get on with those books. You know, I never liked science fiction." A very kind of meta <laughs> joke. Yeah, that's a great uh, line. <laughs> but I think there is that kind of. You know, is there a sense of there's something almost not dismissive exactly uh, of of Asimov's work necessarily in that moment but there is a kind of sense of yes that's sort of there but it's not what we're that's not what we're doing here do you know what I mean this is a kind of different it's uh it's kind of it's there in the background but it's not really applicable to this world or this situation that the show is is depicting one way or another yeah I think it's sort of trying to almost not like dis put you know Asimov's work into any sort of disrepute but sort of undermine the fact that you know this this is going to challenge those laws you know this is <laughs> this is absolutely having you know robotic life forms kill human beings and so I think it's almost a way of of saying that the you know we're not we're not going down that very traditional exploratory route of but then but, but ultimately in a way it does because Asimov's work was all about exploring the, the, the that combination of you know um, science and technology, and and how w- how synthetic life forms might interact with us in the future, and 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 utopia. You know, his foundation books are amazing work in terms of you know talking about the growth and decay of entire like civilizations and and federation like empires. So it's it's like there's, there's 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 definite, and he was a contemporary of Gene Roddenberry as well, wasn't he? So you know, he was a 
it, it, there's a lot of interesting you know reference points in terms of Asimov in terms of the history of Star Trek as well and as well I think it was a good red herring for Girati because I remember thinking at the time that that was a big clue that she was a synthetic herself and didn't turn out to be the case so I think it might have been oh, one right, of them okay. as well but that might just be me a red herring basically a bit like Could all those be. cues you know lots of people were mm. um, the, the queens that Data put yeah. down in that initial card game people were saying you know what do the cues rep- what do the queens represent is it Q is it the Borg Queen you know we did get a Borg Queen one way or another but you know um <laughs> you know expecting this to be a kind of tease for for some plot point i always sort of thought it was just supposed to be an impossible hand of cards uh, to indicate it was a dream but you know who knows you can read it you can read it different ways i guess um one final thing that jumped out at me from those first three episodes um which i think is more in the kind of realm of of, of subtext almost rather than text but I, I made a strong case for this in Rhea Papagiorgio's Picardingo uh, Facebook group, uh, which was a, a kind of subgroup within the Babel conference, basically, where um, we were playing this this bingo game with Picard of, of kind of trying to look for, I guess, sort of next gen callouts, basically, in the show. And if you got, you know, you had a bingo card with all of them, and I'd done quite well, I'd got nearly a full line, and the one I was missing was Dixon Hill. And I did think, in some ways, these first three episodes, okay, there is no explicit Dixon Hill reference, tragically. But I do think that Dixon Hill kind of hovers slightly in the background with Picard's story because you do have a setup which is very much like a kind of hard-boiled sort of detective story. You know, Picard is there... Uh, this mysterious woman turns up at his door uh, seeking his help. He tries to help her. She dies again in kind of mysterious circumstances. He sort of gets roped into this mystery. He's then going off uh, looking for this other woman. You've got this kind of sense this these sort of slight structural similarities there i think and also you've got um with the scenes with daj in the in the slightly noirish scenes in the rain in the dark um where she's like calling her mum on that um little screen or whatever i don't know it felt to me like there was almost maybe it was conscious on some level a sort of slight allusion to picard as this dixon hill i suppose being this sort of character slightly broken character who's kind of going solving a mystery and this show more than any other star trek show is really about uncovering a mystery and particularly in those first few episodes you know he's going to okinawa to to inter- you know he's, he's going he's doing the interviews it is basically a kind of procedural investigation in some sense uh what he's up to uh, so I don't know, I sort of felt maybe this was me. I, I, I didn't win the argument, incidentally, and I didn't win the game of bingo. But <laughs> it felt to me there was kind of a little bit of a, a hint there, at least, of the kind yeah. of Dixon Hill uh, element that Picard was almost living out for real here. Yeah, I think there's a definite noir trope in some of the things you've just said there. Absolutely. You know, in that he goes off on a, you know, a, a woman comes to his door and he goes off on a, on, a, on a detective journey, essentially. So no, I think there's something to that. And it's a good way of looking at it, I think. It would have been great to have a Dixon Hill reference in there just to sell it. <laughs> as well, actual mention of Dixon Hill. But yeah. No, I think and that's the hat. I mean, yeah. well, you know, why couldn't, in start of City Rag, why could he not have gone as Dixon Hill yeah, instead of yeah. that ridiculous Frenchman? That would have been, you know... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It would yeah. have made a million fans happy and it, it would have completed my bingo card. So, you know, yeah. um, well, before we move on, the, the, the only other thing I wanted to bring up was, um, and this is kind of a general thing, but I think the first time it registers in this show it, it is in these first few episodes with the reference to Rios's previous ship, the Ibn Majid. Ibn Majid was an Arabian navigator and cartographer. I, I'm going on Wikipedia for this, I have to say. But I think it's interesting that we have Picard here trying to broaden 
the kind of scope of with these ship names, you know, sort of where they're coming from. And we get it again in the finale with the, you know, the ship that Riker is on is the Zheng He. Again, a kind of a, a Chinese, I think, explorer. Um, you know, so someone from a kind of non-Western context, basically. And we had this with Discovery as well. You know, the Discovery had the Shenzhou, it had the Buran. Um, it had these ships that were named after, you know, not, not always named after American reference points, basically. And I think it's interesting that Star Trek in this kind of new iteration is making the effort to think about, you, you know, what do these ship names represent? What is the kind of shared cultural legacy that the Federation uh, I mean, we've got the the uh, Shran as well in Discovery Universe. So it's not just Earth, but but particularly within Earth's own kind of cultural context that that is real from our point of view. That you know that we can go to Wikipedia and look up who these people were and so on. They are making an effort to draw on a kind of wider field, and at the very least, get people like me going and googling Ibn Majid and and looking up and finding out a little bit about this person, um, and using those ship names as a kind of way of doing that and, and kind of broadening the canvas in that way. Well, it's more varied than the old days when all the runabouts were named after American rivers, isn't it? Really, so <laughs> you know, it makes a nice change. <laughs> Are they all American rivers? Oh, I haven't even realised well, that. Well, I, I, I may be being a bit facetious. But Surely the, the Yangtze Kiang is a, is a Chinese the, river, The Yangtze Kiang probably is. The, I, I just remember things like the Orinoco. I think the Orinoco was was one runabout, and it just felt like a lot of them were particularly... Sorry, geography is really not my... Not my uh, <laughs> I'm probably being a bit facetious, but I do remember there Subject being to. some, quite a lot. It always seemed like there was American, traditional sort of American reference points for those kind of ship names and things like that. So, yeah, it is good. It is an absolute... It does feel like there's a bit more of that in this modern era of Star Trek, definitely. Okay, so moving on from the uh, pilot, essentially, those first three episodes, to Absolute Candor, which I think, for me anyway, was a bit of a shock in some ways, this episode, because it's very different in style, in tone and so on, to those ones that went before it. Uh, and then again, I think the one that follows it, Stardust City Rag, you know, even more so, again, a complete shift of tone, a complete shift of style. These were the episodes, and I know when you ranked them on your um, Facebook group for Make It So... These were the episodes that came out bottom, I think, in the rankings uh, for people, because I think they are sort of the oddities. Weirdly, they're the two Jonathan Frakes episodes. So in some ways, you might think they get Jonathan Frakes in and they're going to get the most sort of consistent, the most kind of solid, the most reliable episodes. In some ways, they get, I would say, I mean, I, I quite liked Absolute Candor. I have to say I did not like Stardust City Rag one bit. I felt Stardust City Rag was an episode from the director of Star Trek Insurrection, uh, (laughs) you know, rather than the director of Star Trek First Contact. But whatever you think of the merits of these episodes, they are quite interesting in that they absolutely... I think it must be quite deliberate to sort of say, okay, this show is not just doing one thing. Yes, you might just have seen three episodes that felt like they were telling one story, but don't assume that means that the rest of the season is going to be completely sort of tonally consistent throughout we we reserve the right to go off the rails now and then and do a kind of do essentially do episodic star trek uh of old but let's look at absolute candor uh first what jumped out for you as as kind of interesting reference points in that one i think the big one is probably the three musketeers really and the you know i mean a, a few people have said the best the best part of that whole episode is probably the tr- the the teaser, you know, the the, pre- the pre-credit sequence, where you see the Picard and Elnor story historically, and you see him, you know, introducing Elnor to the idea of Dumas, you know, and 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 the, his his novel, and and them fencing, and you know, reading the book to him, and things like that. And I think, I think I I, I mean, I didn't really like 
elements. So I, I, all, all the Picard stuff with Absolute Candor was fine. It was all the other stuff that I didn't like and brings it down for me. And I didn't really have anything in particular with problem with the direction either. It was just that the B-plot was horrendous. It was awful. It was terribly written. Whereas all the Picard stuff and Elnor is fine. It's pretty good. And I think the fact that it um, it does tap into literature in maybe the most pointed way that you'd get in this whole season, really. And, and you know, the fact that Picard, you with literature and, 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 you know, that kind of culture was, was key to Picard in, you know, um, in the past, in the next generation was very, it felt a very next generation thing, him reading this classic French novel to his, you know, like you say, his sort of grandson sort of standing. So I, I, I loved that. I thought that was really nice. Well, it's also obviously a callback to Picard as a fencer. You know, it's kind of a callback to Next Gen on many levels, this episode. It feels more like a Next Gen episode than the three that preceded it, uh, insofar as it does feel kind of, you know, the the ship arrives at a planet, they beam down, they kind of have some shenanigans, uh, they go home again at the end kind of thing. So it's kind of got a more traditional Star Trek structure to it, I think. I mean, in some ways, one of the things I found slightly baffling about these teasers that are the kind of flashbacks is that I didn't feel that Patrick Stewart played the younger Picard all that differently from the old Picard in some you know you kind of really the younger Picard should only be a couple of years older than Nemesis if you know what I mean I mean this should be pretty much the Picard we know but I feel like in this one you do sort of get a glimpse of that certainly when you see him fencing when you see the the kind of way that he's dealing with the Romulans on this planet we he feels more like kind of movie Picard somehow you know a bit a bit lighter than the TV Picard but um he's got a bit more he's more cheerful for a start you, you know he kind of hasn't yet been weighed down by uh, all this kind of misery of, of what's happened in the last few years so you've got this sense it feels like a TNG episode it's kind of episodic you've got this reference to Picard fencing you've got this idea of Picard dropping literary references you know, literally bringing someone a book and, and give it, giving it to them as a gift. Uh, you've also got, I mean, I, I, I wrote in my notes, the man from Del Monte, clearly the other <laughs> uh, major inspiration on this episode, uh, if you look at what Picard is wearing. So, you know. <laughs> there was a great meme that I don't know if you saw that I put in one of my Facebook groups that was the, uh, the scene from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade where Indy tries to fool the Nazis by suggesting that Marcus Brody, his uh, you know his 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 like curator at the museum he works in, <laughs> you know, he says he speaks a dozen languages. He knows every local custom. He'll blend in. He'll disappear. You'll never see him again. And then he cuts to him and talk to his dad later. And he goes, "You kidding? He got lost in his own museum." <laughs> it was a great it was a great gift line to put on the picture of Picard in the man from Del Monte suits. <laughs> and I I thought that was amazing. That worked so well. But yeah, it, it's it does add, it adds a nice level of um, I think the way he's dressed and the and the way he you see him in that adds a nice level of almost um, sort of cult, cultured travelogue to Picard I think which is really nice and I, I appreciated seeing him in that context really although there is a slight element of the Englishman abroad in some of those scenes particularly when he's talking to the Romulans later on because there are moments where he almost does. You know the way that like English people, they just get louder and kind of more, you know, sort of obnoxious <laughs> in some ways. When and he's he's talking Romulan to these people and they're kind of ignoring him and he's just sort of saying it louder and getting more and more grumpy that he's not being served in this, you know, bar or whatever it is. And there is something about that. It does sort of remind me of the kind of you know slightly the, the the English person who expects everyone to you know behave the way that they they think they should when they go on holiday. And definitely his his outfit there feels like kind of 
It's, it's weird. It's kind of colonial holiday garb yeah. almost, isn't it? It's kind of it is a strange choice. He does, you, you know, seem like he it's might true. be in India or somewhere. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but interesting, you know, yes, three musketeers. Obviously, Elnor on that level is a musketeer. He's a swordsman. You know, he's going to learn to be this great swordsman and so on. But I suppose there is this sort of big question, though. Is Elnor a musketeer? Or is Elnor an elf? Because, you know, if you're looking at uh, literary and cinematic influences yeah. on this episode and, in, and on the character of Elnor more generally, it does feel like they very, very deliberately went for this kind of Lord of the Rings uh, vibe there. And it's there. I mean, a lot of it is in the kind of styling and the the costume and so on there. You know, you can look at the... Um, side-by-side comparisons of Elrond in the Lord of the Rings films and Elnor in Star Trek Picard, where they're almost literally wearing the same outfit. Uh, but it also is there in the kind of language. I mean, this idea of uh, he's he's asked at one point, will you bind your sword to my quest? I mean, this sounds very much like sort of Cod Tolkien language in a sense. I mean, Vashti feels a little bit like uh, Rivendell in the Lord of the Rings with these nuns, these kind of wise nuns. You know, it's some way it feels like a sort of place of sanctuary. It feels like this place with these kind of, you know, these these sage characters who also turn out to be brilliant sword fighters and so on. But there is, of course, another reference point to this idea of the the Romulan, you know, sword fighters, which which is something quite new from a Star Trek point of view. I think certainly in terms of on screen Star Trek, but it's not entirely new because, as we know from Michael Pillar's discarded draft of Insurrection, there was a character in that who was going to be the villain of the film, who I think was a kind of master sword wielding Romulan. So I can't help wondering whether when they were developing this character of Elnor, were they partly inspired by this, you know, Star Trek film that never got made? I mean, insofar as you were saying they ignore the bits of Nemesis that they don't want to deal with while picking up the story from Nemesis, are they also almost picking up the version of Insurrection that sadly wasn't the one that we got to see in the cinema? It could be, because, I mean, they they certainly... There's enough deep cuts in Picard to make you feel like they know... They know their law, you know, they know the history of Star Trek, even if they subvert it at times and they don't hold true always to some of the precepts. I think they, they know it inside out. So it's possible. I mean, my, my instinct with Alnor is that he's he is recognisably more of a fantasy trope than he is a science fiction idea. And I think one, one of the things that they've maybe taken into account, particularly with how they've portrayed the, this, this, the Star Trek world in Picard, is that... You know, you, everything sort of exists in the shadow of things like Game of Thrones these days in terms of television. You know, the the, the massive success of fantasy. E- everything now is fantasy was dead on television. You never you never saw any of that years ago. You know, it, it had a resurgence in cinema with The Lord of the Rings, obviously, and then The Hobbit subsequently. But until Game of Thrones, there was no fantasy on television. You know, and I think, and since then. I think you've found there's, there's been far more series that have blended science fiction and fantasy together or have not done science fiction at all. You know, I think you'd find that these days, if you if you went pound for pound, you'd find far fewer overtly science fiction sign of series that you got used to get in the 90s, you know, with Abandon, you know, when, when Star Trek was in its prime in that era. So I think they are consciously, on the one hand, like, you, like we've said earlier, they're doing recognisably very grounded human things in this show, things that reference detective dramas or, you know, have characters behaving in very 20th century ways. But at the same time, I think they're also with Elnor very deliberately tapping into that fantasy market. So, and that's maybe been a problem for some Star Trek fans in that Picard doesn't really feel very science fiction in the way Star Trek is, you know, and I I think that's quite deliberate, really. Yeah, it doesn't really bother me, I have to say. I mean, 
I didn't love the scene where the Romulan guy gets his head chopped off, but that's partly because I felt it was slightly gory for Star Trek in a sense. Or it's not so much that it's gory. I mean, Star Trek does gore before. It's the fact that it kind of revels in the gore. I think there is a slight, I mean, there was this whole debate about Tarantino directing Star Trek and so on. Obviously, this is Frakes doing something that is not necessarily what we associate with Frakes, but you know, but it's there in the script and it's got to be done. I mean, what I don't like about that moment, and it is, it is an undercut insofar as the very next scene is Picard basically saying, how dare you? That was a terrible thing to do. That was not Star Trek, what you just put up on screen. You know, that was, <laughs> that was very naughty. But at the same time, the show is kind of slightly reveling in that moment, I think, and in the kind of the coolness of seeing this guy's head fall off like that. And I do think that was one of those moments that, for me, actually, more slightly more than the stuff with Echeb in the following episode, which I know upset a lot of people, did put me slightly ill at ease, let's say. You, you know, and I, I don't know. I mean, okay, it's a small moment in the episode, but I don't know that it helps the episode necessarily bringing that kind of sensibility in. And I do think it's to do, it's not so much the violence, it's the attitude towards the violence of the show okay you know not not picard picard is very much against it but also what is elnor's i mean okay elnor is this great warrior i know he keeps saying please you know choose to live basically don't fight me my friends uh but at the same time there is something slightly sociopathic about the willingness that he has to murder people mm. and albeit yeah. in that situation and i only appreciated this on the rewatch picard is in imminent mortal danger when he chops the guy's head off you, you know which is a peculiar and it, and it involves a lot of kind of acrobatics to set that up in a sense but okay maybe that is the only way he can stop Picard from being stabbed through the artificial heart or whatever but it feels very much like a kind of show-off move somehow yeah it's, it's, it's like a special move yeah. you know yeah. <laughs> it's like a video game character special move and you know one of the problems with Elnor has been that he's not he's not in any way characterized really beyond beyond the basic throughout this entire season he is a completely sort of blank slate and part of it is the point that he's intentionally quite naive and he's grown up in this world and it, it, it's played frequently for comedy you know the his naivety and his uh, you know his, his his candor but at the same time I think he is quite. He's in very much in danger by the end of the season of becoming one of those classic sort of characters that's perf, perf, impossible to. He needs a challenge. He needs somebody to kick the crap out of him. Quite frankly, in season two, because he's too good. You know, he, you can just throw Elnor in and he'll sort it all out for you. And I think, and that that's the problem with that scene is that yeah, it does it does revel a little bit in. Oh, look at the special move he can do. You know, like Mortal Kombat style <laughs> when. Yeah, and and uh, it is good that Picard turns around and, and objects morally because it's certainly not the sort of thing a musketeer would necessarily do, you know. <laughs> and and I think it, it it's good in that sense. But yeah, I think you know these two episodes are strange in how, and it doesn't happen in any other part of this season, but they're strange in how much they double down on violence and how much they they seem to really portray uh, quite nasty brutal violence without any real and you know you mentioned Icheb I, I I don't understand why that scene exists I under, well, I do understand why it exists I understand the point of it in terms of Seven's character but I don't understand why it exists in the way it was filmed it's bizarre it's just really bizarre in that it's it's like the show is trying to comment on almost for want of a better term the torture porn kind of subgenre of horror but for no reason 
like at all, you know, except maybe to sort of suggest that these people are terrible and there's something horrible happening to him in terms of the Borg, you know, stuff. But that entire scene could have been, could have had the same impact had the direction suggested as opposed to very, very clearly shown. Yeah. And and it, it was just a strange choice. I suppose you could argue that these two episodes are the ones that are trying to set up the sort of broader world post Romulan supernova. So in a sense that, that, that there's a kind of geopolitical shift, there's a power vacuum, there's a kind of chaos, you know, which is why we get these Fenris Rangers showing up, this kind of lawlessness um and that therefore that's why we, you know, we get, so in absolute candor, we see a kind of almost a sort of failed, it's not quite a failed state, but it, you, you know, it is kind of an experiment that's gone wrong. You know, Picard went back thinking it was all going to be how they'd laid it out, where everyone was going to get on fine. It was all going to be nicey, nicey. Uh, and in fact, he goes back and, um, you know, there's kind of segregation basically going on. So it's, it's, it's not the world that they thought they were creating. So in a sense, it's a sort of failed colony, uh, which of course we've had in Star Trek many times before, though not really in the kind of next gen universe. And then Stardust City Rag, I guess we're seeing this kind of lawless world where anything goes and, um, really appalling abuses are taking place. And the XBs again are, you know, like the Romulans, they're sort of the scourge of the galaxy somehow they're kind of looked down on their they're they're the other that are being treated appallingly badly one way or another so maybe there's this sort of theme there that these two episodes are in there to kind of set up the world of of star trek and particularly the kind of post romulan empire world but they are very they're very strange they're, they're both particularly star city rag i think is a very very strange episode um in its own right. And they certainly don't feel as much tied in. I mean, I would say that the, the generally speaking, these ones, and then again, the finale in some ways feels a bit dis, di, not disjointed, but sort of cut off. And you could argue Nepenthe kind of feels cut off. It's, it's a weird thing. I feel like there are, there are various episodes as we go on, particularly with the Borg Cube storyline, which is kind of layered into those first three episodes as a B plot. And Soji's story, that sort of feels more like one thing somehow, as much as it's maybe drawn out slightly excessively. Whereas, so, so maybe it's part, it's this weird tension between serialization and these kind of episodic stories and the episodic ones. I just think it's interesting. Everyone always says, let's go back to episodic Star Trek. And yet when we have, and, and with Discovery, when they did a more episodic episode like Magic to Make the Sanest Man Go Mad, everyone loved it because they said, oh, right, this is back to, uh, oh, and again with, um, Season two of Discovery with um, New Eden, much more traditional kind of episodic storyline. Uh, everyone loved it. With Picard, these are the ones that when you do your poll, come out bottom of the pile. I think particularly with Stardust City Rag, part of the reason for that could be that I don't think people really felt like it explored anything of particular interest. You know, I mean, if you if you look at say magic to make the sanest man go mad, that's a time loop story, and it's a it's a really good, effective time loop story, for instance, and it works really well in that sense in that in that story. And you know, there are certain ongoing sort of arcs going through it, but it does work well. With Stardust City Rag, it's a sort of swerve. It's a swerve to reintroduce Seven properly. It's a swerve to, you know, add certain contextualizations to Raffi's character or, you know, to resolve the Bruce Maddox thing. So it is very it is still very connected to the ongoing story. It just doesn't happen to have any of the Borg Cube stuff ongoing in it. So it's standalone to one extent, but in another it's not. It's it's the it's the midpoint where it's sort of 
you know, tying up certain threads before you launch into the final five. But I think the problem was for a lot of people with Star of City Rag, it felt forced. I mean, it, it felt like it almost felt like a weird sort of combination of a comedy or holodeck episode of Star Trek from the old days mixed with quite a violent, brutal mixture of storylines that it didn't come together. It didn't come together in the writing. It was like there was a lot of ideas in there and a lot of stylistic touches and quite a few cultural reference points and, and suggestions that were interesting, but it didn't really, for, it did, for me certainly, it didn't really tell any kind of particularly interesting story. It just felt like a means to an end, and it felt more focused on exploring Seven's aspect, which is understandable, than really, I don't, you didn't need to do it. You know, and and I suppose the difference is if we were in if we were in a, a a series where it was more standalone stories that really told a proper classic sort of standalone Trek story, or even something that was, you know, comedic or a holodeck episode, and you really felt like you got something out of it. Stardust City Rag just feels like they wanted to go off piste a little bit and and try something, and it didn't really hang together. So. And with absolute candor, maybe it was a similar feeling, but I feel like that one has a little bit more, there's more weight to that in certainly the Picard and Elnor stuff in many ways and what that's exploring. I just didn't think Stardust City, it looked really fun. You know, in the trailers beforehand, I was like, oh, this is going to be a great little romp. And then it actually wasn't very fun at all, really, which was a real surprise. <laughs> it slightly felt to me like one of those episodes where the actors are having more fun than the audience, if you know what I mean. I mean, certainly with... Uh, uh, and you know i've said this on another podcast i think for me the thing that really killed it was patrick stewart's terrible french accent which just because i know not not just because i don't think that captain picard would do a terrible french accent but because i've seen patrick stewart do that accent on the graham norton sofa on a dozen other chat shows because it's kind of his party piece he does the space the final frontier with this awful cod French accent, you know, saying spiz, yeah. final frontier. Uh, and that's his, that's, that's his kind of routine that he's been doing for the last few years. And it just sort of felt like at some point, someone, probably his old mate, Jonathan Frakes, said to him, oh, Patrick, why don't you do that, you know, thing you've been doing on all those chat shows? And it just, it, it felt a bit cheesy. It still took me, it took me out of it. And, and in, in other ways, the episode I thought was bizarre. But, you know, there are elements in it that I found quite effective, that were quite dramatic. There are moments that worked quite well. But I just, I found it kind of baffling and bewildering. I was thinking though, I mean, one question about that episode is, what is the rag? What does the title mean? And I was kind of looking into this and, and looking it up. I mean, a rag is another word for a piece of ragtime music. So possibly a Stardust City rag is a piece of music. And we do see a woman playing the piano in that bar. You, you know, maybe it's kind of a reference to that. I mean, the, the entertainer would be the most famous example of kind of ragtime music. So I guess maybe slightly kind of light, slightly kind of cheeky, almost kind of, maybe it conveys something of that idea. You know, what does it mean? I, I, feel, I mean, there are, there are often Star Trek episodes with slightly oblique titles one way or another. And obviously we can come to the, the finale in due course and, and talk about the meaning of that episode. But um, this is one where the title seems to, on the face of it, seems quite like these are all quite familiar words. But what does it actually refer to? It's not entirely clear. Absolute candor, obviously, I, I love that as a title and I love the whole concept. It fits perfectly. Uh, it makes a lot of sense of the episode. And you could say that idea of absolute candor is kind of a theme that maybe plays out in the season as a whole. Stardust City Rag, what does it even 
<laughs> what does it even mean? And maybe that's one of the problems with the episode. What does this episode even mean? But I think it's interesting. And you could say, you know, if it is a reference to ragtime music, that's an interesting thing to kind of bring in there. You know, when we've had, you know, we've had blue skies in the kind of opening and the closing of the season. We've got this other, you know, maybe another musical reference coming in here, but a slightly more... A ragged rhythm is, is is how a rag is described. And I'm not a musicologist. Someone with a better understanding of music might be able to pinpoint really the sort of the the kind of meaning going on here. But I just I just thought it was an interesting question mark. But I mean, but both these episodes, they, they you know, there are some other things we might want to pull out. I mean, going back to ship names, uh, we hear that the the locals on Vashti in absolute candor arrived on the USS Nightingale, obviously named after Florence Nightingale. But the Nightingale is a Wallenberg class ship. And I think Una's novel may, I mean, there's certainly a lot more on the, on the kind of Vashti stuff in there. I can't remember if there's more about the Wallenberg ships. I think there might be. Wallenberg ships named for the Swedish Raoul Wallenberg, uh, who saved the lives of thousands of Hungarian Jews during the Holocaust. So again, someone who worked with, you know, refugees, saving the lives of refugees, so very appropriate for this kind of Romulan storyline, but again, explicitly drawing the parallel with World War II and kind of bringing back another World War II reference. Um, Another interesting reference point, maybe in that episode, the Fenris Rangers. I mean, Seven of Nine mentions Fenris as being a planet uh, in the former neutral zone, I think. But the the name Fenris, when I looked it up, it seems to be um, a reference to something called the, the, either the Fenris Wolf or the Wolf of Fenrir, which is a character in Norse mythology. And again, I don't know a huge amount about Norse mythology, but from my kind of Googling and Wikipedia research and so on, it seems to be associated with this kind of apocalyptic moment of Ragnarok, which is when the Fenris Wolf will break free of its chains and cause mayhem and destruction. So again, that you know, there may be kind of more to pick out there, but certainly there seems to be an association with something which is tied to the end of the world, which obviously is going to become a huge theme when we get to the end of the season. Yeah, and I think that a, a bit outside of these, these references, I think Stardust City Rag in particular is trying to convey a, a sense of being, you know, Free Cloud, which again is a strange name in a way for the kind of I mean, I immediately when I saw it, I was thinking, oh, it's space Las Vegas, isn't it, really? And it, it's trying to, you know, depict that kind of planet world that, you know, it seems to have cropped up in the wake of the neutral zone falling. But a sort of almost den of iniquity kind of city, planet or whatever, where, it again, which feels very rooted in an earlier age, it's the kind of planet you can't almost imagine existing in the Star Trek universe that that we used to see, and and now and now it does. And I think that the whole idea of this is that it's that the episode is sort of one part caper, one part an exploration of of that kind of lawless outpost, really. And that I mean, you know, and and there's been a lot of people saying how Seven is essentially a cowboy. You know, they've they've transformed that character into a cowboy. And and she is now a, a ranger, you know, uh, protecting the, the 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 innocent townsfolk in all these different places. You might as well be on horseback, you know, going round to different villages, saving the locals from the outlaws. And that that's kind of what she's been turned into. So the, it's, you you combine the cowboy with the the de- you know the, the the classic sort of city where you know if you're going back to the old Wild West, it would be the um, 
you know the town where you've got the saloon and you've got someone playing on the piano and and you've got the you know the the thugs who walk into town all kind of, you've got all those all the, you know the the local boss you know and that's be bejazzle essentially and so you and, and maybe then mixed in with a little bit of like Casablanca style you know the club aspect of it all you know and this this place where so there's i think there's a few sort of touch points that they're sort of blending into the whole idea of free cloud and the 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 you know and and that could connect to the title and it could connect to those kind of reference points and i think it's all sort of a big hodgepodge they're trying to create but it but it i don't and but then you've got weird things like what's that hospital doing there you know where where raffi's son is you know and and his wife are like it was i found that weird i was like well isn't this supposed to be like a, a sort of a dodgy little Vegas place where you got a lot of crooks and criminals? But why is this hospital not right next door? I just couldn't get my head around that. I sort of assumed that was a bit like people going across the border into Mexico to get uh, prescription drugs over the counter, that there was something a little bit, you know, maybe off the books or kind of off the, I don't know, whatever they were doing to do with obviously some kind of reproductive services or whatever, that there was something slightly... Not not dodgy necessarily, but that they were operating there for reason, for kind of legal reasons or something. I don't know what that would be because obviously, when we saw Rafi's son seem to be having a baby with a Romulan woman, as far as we could tell, who knows? May, you know, maybe that's difficult biologically. Maybe that requires some kind of intervention. Maybe the terms of the Galactic Treaty forbid that because the Romulans are basically racists. I don't know. You know, who knows what all that's about? But that, that I sort of took that as this is some other kind of slightly, um, you know, para para legal kind of uh, thing that's going on there. But I mean, it's interesting that the, the very word free cloud. Because I remember when I went on your show, we discussed. Um, uh, the end is the beginning on your show, and that was when we hadn't seen. Obviously, that that was the most recent episode that we that we'd seen, and that's when the first reference to free cloud came in. And we talked a little bit, I think, about you know what do we think free cloud is and what does it mean. And there were no other than the name, there were literally no clues. But I do think it's a strange. The the name is almost stranger than the concept or the, or the kind of execution because it feels like such an un-Star Trek name for a place somehow. I mean, first you've got the idea of free. Now, in Star Trek, everything is free because they have no money, notionally. You know, okay, fine. Rios is being paid by Picard. Who knows how that works? And obviously, there are all kinds of transactions going on in Star Trek all the time. But on some level, we're supposed to believe that there's no money. Then you've got the the cloud. To me, that made me think of like cloud computing and, and you know, where I keep my, you know, Word documents. Uh, <laughs> on your free cloud. And so yeah. on. But there's also exactly on my free cloud, uh, which, which and, and that maybe ties into the fact that when you get to free cloud, you get all these pop-ups and this kind of annoying, um, again, sort of grounding it in reality in some ways. Um, with, with the idea that your starship is going to be kind of bombarded with irritating <laughs> advertising, which, of course, is a joke that we've had in Star Trek yeah. before, you know come to quarks quarks is fun etc but um it also makes it sound free cloud sounds a bit like somewhere in star wars it sounds more star wars than star trek somehow to me i did expect to see it floating i was a bit disappointed in a way that it just it did look just like space vegas and it was kind of just uh, a city uh, on a planet i guess i don't know do we know i think i think it is it is on a planet isn't it um so i was kind of expecting something a bit more weird and radical but it, it definitely it, there's something about it that feels a little bit anti-Star Trek, and maybe that's deliberate. By the time you get there, they're very much trying to ground it. We've got Mott the Barber. We've got Quark's franchised bar now. It sort of is tapping more into the kind of canon and the and the kind of grounding it in Star Trek history in that way. But it's it's kind of an interesting choice, I think. 
I mean, other things that we might pull out of that episode, I, I suppose the big thing really, I guess, which we've talked about before is what happens with Agnes and, um, and Maddox. You, you know, the, the Agnes killing Maddox, there's an element. Agnes is essentially a kind of Manchurian candidate. Now, when we first started Primitive Culture, we did an episode about the original book and film of the Manchurian candidate uh, and the next gen episode, The Mind's Eye. Since then, Star Trek has become a bit obsessed with Manchurian candidates. I mean, we had Ash Tyler in Discovery, a huge arc there. Then we've got uh, Agnes Girati in Picard. But we've also got Soji, in effect, and Darge are effectively kind of Manchurian candidates in that they've lost their memories, they're on missions that they don't understand, they're kind of being manipulated. You know, that mom AI that they talk about that is kind of putting Soji to sleep and feeding Darge information is very much like the kind of programming that you get in those storylines. And obviously with Agnes, it's slightly unclear, you know, is it just that Agnes has been shown this apocalyptic vision, which we see later on, which looks slightly like it's been ripped out of Terminator 2, this kind of, uh, you know, destructive future of, of, of the machine apocalypse where everything blows up and is terrible and therefore decides that she has to do what she has to do. Or is she at some level being slightly mind controlled? Because she says they that O puts in a neural block, which stops her from telling anyone what's happening. Uh, she seems very much like she's kind of weighing the, the moral quandary before she kills him but at the same time i, I don't know I, I feel there's there's a slight ambiguity around the whole story of you know how manipulated is she is, is she like someone who's kind of been hypnotized in effect and is therefore not entirely acting under their own volition because once she kind of has killed maddox and come clean about it she very quickly she very quickly is pretty clear that she doesn't want to kill soji even though clearly that's the thing that she's supposed to do next it's maybe a slightly greyer area than it was with Ash Tyler, even in some ways. But, but it's interesting that, again, this kind of theme is being brought up. You know, this person is not only a double agent or isn't isn't a double agent. That's kind of the point. Uh, it's not that she's actually working for the Romulans out of loyalty or, you know, that she's secretly a Romulan or that she's secretly a synth. It's, again, this idea of someone whose kind of brain has been tampered with somehow. I, I don't really understand why she killed Maddox. Like I, I, I think it's a really strange. I, th- I think it was a really strange decision, and I think it was an, a decision that really didn't help the, her character in, in any way, shape, or form. Because subsequently, she was just all over the place, and I think you could have quite honestly, you could have quite easily had Maddox play the sung function in the final episode. Really, you could have had him go with them and go down to that planet and they all know who he is and he's not been there for a while and then he f- he plays that exact same function basically and i think it it's, it's it's it was a strange decision in that it didn't feel like she was completely brainwashed it felt like she'd had she'd been given some information but i didn't really understand why that meant she had to kill bruce maddox and murder him in cold blood and i i just didn't i don't feel like it was properly either explained or given enough context and then the show i mean there i think the writers have suggested there will be some reckoning for what she did in season two in some way but or they will at least go talk about it but i feel like the show kind of lets her off the hook in many ways and i i I just i just don't understand you know i mean if you look at something like the mind's eye that's very clearly a manchurian candidate story when you look at ash tyler you know you understand 
that the, the arc, once you find out who he is, you understand what they're doing. You understand the arc of that. And then what he actually does, even though season two sort of undermines the shock value of what he did, but it, it's at least making sense. There is an ongoing story. With with Agnes, I was a bit like, well, it, why? Like, what, why, why, why is, why did she do that? I just, I just don't think it was very good. And I, I think it was a, a bit of a, I think the whole idea of what's going on with Soji, particularly with that, is better. But even that, it kind of just peters out in the end. And it's, it's a little bit hit and miss. I don't, I think fundamentally that it was, a, it was an, the old Manchurian candidate thing in this was an idea too far. And it, maybe it's all part of trying to brew up the paranoia and, the fact that you can't really trust anybody and that there's these secret conspiracies going on, which fits with what we've talked about earlier. But I feel like it was just one idea too many for some of these characters. And you could have told this story without it. Well, let me put forward a theory, and this is totally speculative, and we may probably, most likely, will never know whether this might have any bearing on reality. But it just crossed my mind. When you say that Maddox could have played the role that... um, so whatever his name is, the Brent Spiner character plays in the finale. Is it not possible that that was the original intention? And then at some point, someone persuaded Brent Spiner to be in this show. And having persuaded Brent Spiner to be in this show, you get, first of all, well, you get that beautiful scene, which makes up the kind of sort of epilogue, really, of the, the kind of coda of the finale. Uh, but the finale could have worked. The, the main plot of the finale could have worked without any of that, without the data stuff at all. That wasn't necessary to the story. Um, it, and it's kind of, it, it's the culmination of a secondary story. The weird thing is the finale sort of seems like suddenly it's all about Picard and data. And in some ways it's a bit confusing because the show hasn't exactly felt like it's been about Picard and data, but they kept dropping in stuff about Picard and data to sort of set us up for that. But is it possible that actually it was originally going to be Maddox playing that role, which would kind of explain why they brought back this character. You know, in those early episodes where I say Picard is playing Dixon Hill, Maddox is the guy he's got to find. You know, that's the mystery is where is Maddox? Is he alive or dead? What's going on with him? And then having secured Brent Spiner to play this role and decided that we're going to have another Sung and so on, actually, we don't need Maddox anymore in those final episodes. So let's kill him off you know, in the same episode that we find him in. I don't know. It's just pure speculation, as I say. But there is this weird sense of this kind of doubling of these characters. Like, it's very strange that we have, we go on this search for Maddox, who is on this mysterious planet somewhere, you know, putting together androids. And then actually what we find is Sung, who's there and has presumably been doing it before Maddox even arrived there i think or has he i'm not sure anyway and so what's the relation and all we get is really sung says oh i he said something like i do the bodies and maddox does the substrates whatever that means maddox is the one who kind of understands consciousness and i mean there's this sense that the two of them work together on it but it's weird we don't see them working together on it we don't see and there's a very weird line in the finale which i unless i'm missing something i think must be kind of a mistake where where Agnes says to Sung, oh, Bruce, I don't know, said said you, yes, he said you were really brilliant at cryptography or something, at cracking code, you, you know, um, decrypting encrypted files or something. And I was thinking, what, what does that refer to? How can she, you know, she didn't know about any of this. She wasn't in contact with him after he'd gone off and, and made contact with Sung. You know, has she, unless she's like been downloading his diaries or something, she says it as if they had a working relationship that was known about uh to her before all of well, maybe that's true who knows maybe that sung was around 
It's all very strange and it's all slightly confusing. And just before he dies, he says something about, you know, we did it, you you and me and Sung and everything. And we assume he means the original Sung, but obviously he means that Sung. Maybe we're supposed to believe that that Sung was around and that, you know, I don't know, she was aware that he was working with Maddox in some way. Who knows? But um, it's a very, it's a strange, it's a mystery, I think. And it does sort of feel like one mad scientist is swapped out for another mad scientist quite possibly so that we can get yeah. Ben Spiner to do his sort of I think so. you know, Sung family tree routine again. Yeah. <laughs> but it's Yeah, I think I think that's true. Well, but it's an interesting it's another strange element to Stardust City Rag, I suppose. Um the other thing, as just a small thing I think since you mentioned you called her Bajazzle. Now she is called Bajazzle. I have to say, when I first watched this episode, I was convinced she was called Bajazzle. And I don't know if this is a reference point that doesn't uh, translate in America or, or what, or if not, how they possibly got this past, you know, whatever passes for. I know they don't, the show isn't censored in the same way because they're allowed to swear and so on. But I, that was another reason I that I found it hard so to take this episode seriously because I was just like they cannot have called they, they, she can't be called Bajazel I did think and then it. I had to look up and realise okay no she's not she's called Bajazel but um, <laughs> is that really accidental that they gave her that name <laughs> you do wonder I mean I, I, it came into my head as well I mean that's a whole interesting I don't know whether that it comes under our remit really but the kind of uh fairly strong i think indication in that episode that she and seven had had this relationship in the past which for some reason a lot of fans were refusing to uh acknowledge and was, was saying it was just you know total fantasy on the part of those of us who were convinced it was there but i think you know certainly the finale uh pretty much it almost seemed designed to sort of confirm yes that is what we were saying in case you missed it kind of thing i think really if if you if you came out of stardust city rag not thinking that she and Bejazel had been lovers, then you weren't watching the episode properly, to be honest. I think it was pretty clear, you know, without necessarily saying it. And it's, you know, it, it it's fair, fair enough. Absolutely. There's nothing that, that was, that was not an issue of mine with this episode whatsoever. The, the issues were all about how it structurally was all over the place. The other thing I'll mention actually, in terms of structure, just quickly is that it very much reminded me of the TV show alias, which is one of the shows that uh, one major shows that Alex Kurtzman cut his teeth on, and obviously he's heavily involved with this. In the scenes where you see them planning the mission to go down to Freecloud, and it cuts between Rios on the mission to being Pimp Daddy, you know, all that kind of thing, and then in the the holographic chateau where they're sort of they're sort of talking through the mission. That's a classic Alias trope, particularly now. Alias may well have got it from somewhere else, but. That was a common thing, certainly in the early uh, seasons of Alias, because it was all about a double agent. That whole show is about somebody who's pretending to be a spy for an agency that's pretending to be the US government. And the whole thing is that she has a counter mission. Every week she has to go and get something and then it's swapped out. And, you know, there's always two things. So it was very much, it felt, that very much felt to me like an Alias thing. And it made me think of that show. And it made me wonder if Alex Kurtzman was trying to throw a little bit of that in to the whole mix as well but that i don't know that that is interesting well it's a trick of course that they use three times in this season which is quite noticeable and when it first happens in maps and legends people talked about it as an instance of confusing editing and i suppose there's a question because this is the point where we have picard and laris and jaban basically there are two scenes going on one is 
in, in, in sequence. First of all, he in his study talks to them about the Jatvash and gets all the kind of um, backstory and the, you know, sort of info dump essentially. And then there's the scene where they go to the apartment and they're doing the investigation. But the two are kind of cross cut back and forth. Yeah. Now, most people describe this as a case of like new Star Trek's confusing editing. I don't know whether that's an editing choice or whether that's if it's actually written that way. Uh, the fact that it comes up over and over again in the series, that it comes up again in Maps and Legends, sorry, that it comes up again in Stardust City Rag and then again in the finale, they do the same thing when they're making the, uh, you know, how are they going to get into back into the Capalia City or whatever it's called? Uh, and then they're kind of enacting the plan and making the plan at the same time. It feels to me like it may well have been scripted like that. And I think certainly in Stardust City Rag, it must have been scripted like that because the script is actually even more involved and wrapped around itself than that. Because it's not just those two things. There's also this kind of raffy thread, which is all slotted in like some weird kind of, you know, uh, set of boxes inside each other or something. And I think that's one of the things also that, that I found slightly confusing about the episode. It, I mean, it's quite clever in some ways, the way that it's written, but it's, it's almost overcomplicated. So we have this weird digression with Raffi's story in the midst of these two other st- simultaneous, not, you know, non-simultaneous, you, you, you know, but they're being presented kind of simultaneously, uh, stories. So there is this weird sense, I suppose, of playing around. You could say that is almost a kind of Tarantino-esque sort of trick. If you think of, you know, Pulp Fiction or something like that, you know, playing around with the yeah, kind of time frame yeah. and so on. Um, and I was wondering, it's interesting you bring up Alias. I mean, I was thinking, you know, where, where does this, idea originate is it i don't know oceans 11 or something that you you know is it is it some story which is about a heist or a plan or a a robbery or do you know what i mean where where there's this idea of you you show the planning and the execution flipping back and forth now i'd be interested if our listeners um can point us in the direction of where that sort of trope or that kind of um way of doing these stories comes from because it certainly seems like someone involved in Picard is very much in love with this way of doing things because it's quite noticeable it jarred for a lot of people when they first watched Maps and Legends and then they do the same trick two more times basically once at the beginning once in the middle and once at the end of the season so that cannot be accidental that they keep coming back to this uh, slightly strange way of telling a story it's a trope it's definitely intentional it's structurally a way of conveying information while also visually while also delivering it in terms of dialogue it's very clearly to me a structural choice and i think it it does work quite often actually it allows for you know if if i'd encourage anyone to go back and watch alias go and watch alias anyway because it's a really good show but if you look at the way that's structured those if they if they had written that show in a sequential order the, the tension of when you get to, because the whole point is when you're on mission, the fact that you've had the, the, the elements of it, whether it's gadgets explained to you or whether it's some of the plot explained, when you, when you see that as a crosscut, it makes the actual mission far more effective because you, you are given contextual information. If all that was given to you beforehand and then you go on the mission, you feel like you're already two steps ahead, basically. And it, and it would, it would sap a lot of the tension out of the actual scene. So I'm not saying it was brilliantly done in Picard. In fact, I don't necessarily think it was very well done, in, particularly in Stardust City Rag. It's better in Maps and Legends, I think. But And I can't even really remember the finale one, clearly. But the, the, the Stardust City Rag one's a bit jagged because it's not quite, you know... But, it, but it's, oh, it's intentional. 100%, I would say that's, that's a choice. And whether, whether that's Kurtzman, I don't know. But... Um, but yeah, it could be... I don't think Alias is the only place it came from. So if anyone does know... 
yeah, let us know because I'd be curious as well. Well, that takes us pretty much to the midway point of season one of Star Trek Picard. So I think we're going to leave things there for today, but we will be back next week uh, with part two, looking at everything from the impossible box onwards. It's been fun talking about Star Trek Picard, uh, but that's not the only thing we've been doing on Trek FM this week, although it is pretty much the main thing we've been doing on Trek FM recently, I would say. But um, uh, here's a listen, in any case, to some of the other stuff that you might have missed on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Earl Grey. This place, like, it seemed like it was very easy for him to just go. It seems like, you know, the Federation and, you know, Picard and Riker and them have that mentality kind of like we would, where they were like, yeah, go get your dad. And I don't think there's a scene where he asks permission. There isn't. He just seems to kind of automatically get permission and just go and do it, which implies that the Enterprise is going to be there for quite a while. Yeah, that's what I was saying, because the Enterprise is docked there and they have to deal with the um, aqueducts. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. So they, like, it says in my little research that I did, because then I got stuck in a Wikipedia hole about Aboriginal astronomy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it says... Um, Rabbit hole. Karawirapari, which is the Aboriginal or Gauna word, sorry, for the River Torrens, which runs through the Adelaide CBD, was thought to be a reflection of the Milky Way known as the Wadley Pari, so named because the bright stars on the edge were thought to be the campfires on the side of the river. I like it. The Wine, a Star Trek Picard podcast. And then also anything with Patrick... Um, anytime I got to act across from him, I just think my acting was a thousand times better. I, w- I was more focused, but at the same time, um, more distracted too. There were a lot of scenes where I'd be sitting there and um, everyone would just stare at me because I'd be forgetting my lines because I was just, so, you know, like so absorbed and immersed in, in Patrick's acting or Alison Hill's acting. I'd just forget that I was, you know, that I had a job to do. <laughs> yes, I can understand that. Almost like you were watching him on the screen or something, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly like that. And then I, there was a lot of times where I'd be like, oh, am, am I meant to speak? And they'd be like, yeah, it's your, it's your turn. I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> they, they just found it funny, though. The Orb. Well, I do think, though, that you can have Section 31 defeated and it not be a black and white thing because, you know, Section 31's desire to completely eradicate all religions because they think it's divisive is definitely their point of view yeah but it's also against everything the federation is supposed to believe in right and so they were legitimately undermining federation values by doing this and so i think that's the dichotomy that you want and that's what else is happening on trek.fm Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favourite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners' group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. 
If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture, and that will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trek.fm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trek.fm, to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons' website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you can find all our details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd like to take a moment now to thank our associate producers on Primitive Culture, Amy Nelson, Clara Cook, and Tony Black. Amy is a presenter of many other shows on the network, and you can find her on Twitter at at Miss Amy Nelson. Clara and Tony were two of the former co-hosts of this show, and they'll be popping back from time to time. You can find Clara on Twitter at at Clara Jean MC, and Tony at at AJ Black Writer. You're blended all right.